1: Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher. Happy to be back bringing you another episode. I hope that, like me, you all enjoyed our old friends, Killing Bird and AZN All In, whatever his name is, Mark Agliotto. Uh I think those guys are so great together on the podcast, and I was looking forward to just sitting back as a fan and listening to that one last week. And, you know, I'm a little giddy. I still get a kick out of the fact that I was such a fan of this podcast and now I actually get to host it. And it might sound crazy to you, but to me, it's a bit of a dream come true. As always, thank you all for your kind words and for following me on Twitter at Clayton Comic. Uh, Lots and lots of messages, tweets, DMs from the uh, last episode that I hosted when I talked about some hands that I played, and a lot of them got quite a reaction out of many of you. Some of you adamantly agreed with my decisions, and some of you just as adamantly opposed my decisions. So it's always nice to hear from everybody. I love the fact that we have so many great poker players out there listening to this podcast and chiming in. That's what makes you better, you know, getting different points of view, different opinions. So uh, I do appreciate it. I really like when you guys interact on Twitter. So what doesn't feel good is knowing that Mike Sexton is no longer of this world. Uh, I know that every single poker podcast has paid tribute to the late, great Mike Sexton this week, and that's you know that's just how it is this will be no exception to that because i just have to share my memories of mike i mean of course like most of you i was a fanboy when televised poker really became something special on the travel channel every wednesday night at 9 p.m. for 2 hours we would watch the world poker tour and learn about places we'd never heard of, like the Commerce Casino. (laughs) And uh, what's the one down in Biloxi or whatever, uh, Beau Rivage, places I had never been, but thought that I might try to visit someday. And there were the great announcers, Mike Sexton and Vince Van Patten, bringing us that action every week alongside the lovely, and I mean absolutely lovely, Shauna Hyatt. Who to me really made the show. I, I wish that every week they would do the Poker Stars Caribbean adventure. Uh, that's not really the point of this conversation, <laughs> but I'm keeping it in because I was uh, the biggest Shauna Hyatt fan ever. Enough about her. The real point is Mike and what he did for the game. Back then, of course, party poker was alive and well in the US and not just in New Jersey. Mike had a sponsorship online poker site, partypoker.net, and then at the end they would say, not a gambling website, play for entertainment only, free site, or whatever. Of course, partypoker.com was an actual poker site, and they sponsored the WPT. Mike brought a lot of passion to his work. He was also essentially an ambassador for the game. He was kind of introducing a lot of people who had never played online poker or maybe any poker at all to the game with his tv show the world poker tour uh one of my favorite mike sexton quotes from those old wpt broadcasts was uh vince mentioned that one of the players appeared to be praying and mike said well i'll tell you one thing vince when you pray at the poker table, you mean it. <laughs> that really made me giggle. Uh, there's a lot of truth in that. Sometimes I think people might pray, whether you're religious or not, people might pray and not really mean it. But if you're praying at the poker table, you're, you're very serious. You want God's help. <laughs> and that I always got to kick out of that line. Well, I'll tell you, Vince, when you pray at the poker table, you mean it. Another thing uh, that he said once, on one of their many 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 episodes together in the early days he said usually when you have a guy in a tie at the poker table it's a good game and he he was right about that especially in the early days of poker if you saw a guy and he showed up say around 6 30 7 p.m at your local card room and he had a shirt and tie on you know that's a guy who's not a pro he's Coming from work, he went straight to the casino after work. He's probably itching to, to get some action after a long day at the office. And uh, I have found that is generally true. Unless the guy in the tie happens to be Tony Dunst or Jeff Platt or Max Steinberg, you're probably uh, in good shape once you see that necktie at your table. So, you know, I just burned a lot of memories in my mind that will be there until the day I die. And I do have one quick story to share about the one and only time I actually met Mike in person. I saw him in the, in the hallway at the Rio. And like so many of you, I thought, Oh, should I say hi? I shouldn't bother him. But you know, I just, I enjoyed his work on television so much. And I just wanted to say hello and, you know, ask him if he would take a picture with me. This was probably the first or second year that I ever went to the WSOP and yeah, you know, he was so nice. He said, oh, yeah, come on over. Yeah, let's, let's do a picture. What, what's your name? Where are you from? And I happened to be performing at a place called the Royal Resort, which I don't even think exists anymore in Vegas. But there used to be a little comedy show there. And I had gotten myself booked, um, you know, headlining this little lounge in a casino called the Royal Resort. And I mentioned it. I mentioned it to Mike Sexton. I don't know how it came up, but we started talking. You know, you're from New York. What do you do out there? And I told him I'm a a comedian. You know, his eyes lit up. He said, I love stand-up comedy. Do you have a show? And I can't remember if the show was that night or the next night, but whatever it was, I actually invited him to the show. And he had people with him, like, I don't know, his manager, his handlers. Like, he was pretty big time around then. And, uh, he asked me to give my phone number to whoever it was, his manager, whoever. So, you know, we took our picture and he said he was going to try to come to the show. And, you know, of course I gave the guy my number. I never expected to hear anything, but sure enough, a few hours before the show, I got a text from the manager that said, Hey, Mike's really sorry, but he's not going to be able to come to the show. Please let me know if you have another one during the summer. And, you know, he didn't come to the show, but just the fact that I heard back from his people, that means that he must have said, don't forget to tell Clayton that we're not going to be able to make it to the show because I had promised them tickets. And, you know, there's many times when I promise VIPs tickets to one of my shows and they blow it off and they never call or never contact me. And that, you know, Little things like that mean a lot. Like, that's the kind of classy gentleman he is. He was probably getting ready to play day three in the stud tournament or whatever, (laughs) the 10K stud, and still took the time and, and had the presence of mind and just respect for his fellow human to let me know that they weren't going to be there so that we could release the tickets. I mean, look, that show didn't exactly sell out anyway at the Royal Resort, but still, it was really sweet you know, to have that positive interaction with someone that I admired, you know. Andrew Brokus and others have told me, never meet your heroes. Apparently that's old sage advice. In this case, I'm glad I did. So I mentioned we've been getting a lot of feedback on recent episodes, and it seems that you guys just can't get enough strategy. So that's good because I do have a couple of hands That I wanted to run through. Things have continued to go well. I actually recently completed a 10-session winning streak, which feels amazing. I mean, I don't know how many times in my online career I've actually had 10 wins in a row. That came to an end over the weekend, last weekend. Not that it greatly improved my bankroll or anything, but just that it, it felt good just for my confidence and just the reassurance that I can compete in the online realm. Because You guys have to remember, although I used to play a lot of online back in the party poker and paradise poker days, pokerroom.com. I was on all of those sites a million years ago, but it was really just the coronavirus that got me back into playing online with any regularity. Uh, I seem to be holding my own, I guess. And that despite losing 50% of my uh, investment in the uh, WSOP online in July. Looking back on it, by the way, now that I have had some time to reflect now that it's September, I can sort of digest what went on back in July when I was really in the thick of it. Those games were tough, you know. I'm not a favorite if I have Berkey and Kerstetter and Stout and LaPlante all at my table with me in July where they just put me in spots where I was guessing. And anytime you're the one guessing, you're losing. I mean, that's kind of the essence of no limit hold'em. You want to put your opponents in the tough spot where, where they have to make the tough decisions. And there were especially the higher buy-ins I was in a little over my head at some of those tables. Now, if I got lucky, they put me at a table with a bunch of satellite winners. I had a much easier time, obviously. But yeah, poker is not dead or dying. If people are willing to play in a Walmart parking lot in their car (laughs) to try to win a bracelet, uh, it's not dead. But the, the, the WSOP events that I played, even though my competition was, at least theoretically, solely located in Nevada and New Jersey. There were plenty of good players in those two states. All that to say, none of us could have known exactly what we were getting into, but it was a bit of a shark tank, in a sense. And if that happens again next year, God forbid, I will definitely want to do more intensive study to prepare for the tough competition. But on the other hand, I have a theory, let me know what you guys think of this one, (laughs) that playing against so many tough opponents so many times and on so many different tables throughout the month of July prepared me for the string of 10 consecutive wins that I ended up posting once I got away from those tables. Now, I had some success in a few of the bracelet events and a couple of the side events most notably the uh, $50 daily deep stack that I won while doing commentary, along with David Tuckman, which was still something that I would call surreal. Playing against really tough opponents for a whole month prepared me to go back and beat up on the lesser skilled opponents that I faced in the month of August. So where I hit a small downswing in July... Uh, August into September was a pretty phenomenal uh, stretch. I say was because I actually haven't played for a few days. I kind of took a little break coinciding with my break from this podcast last week. So uh, with that said, I'm going to discuss some hands now from a couple of tournaments I played on ACR, which did not feature... Expert world beater opponents. Okay, the first hand I want to get into comes from an eleven dollar event on America's Card Room. They run these every day of five thousand dollar guaranteed prize pool or something like that. So it's not one of the big ones. Uh, early on in the tournament, so no real reads on our opponents yet. Starting stack is five thousand, and we're down to forty eight hundred. So this is quite early on. Generally speaking, players will adopt a value-based betting strategy. In other words, you won't find a large amount of bluffing at most tables, particularly in an $11 buy-in on ACR. But really in most tournaments, even including big WSOP events, I find that most players play a tight, aggressive, value-based style for the first few levels of a tournament. And there are good reasons for this. I mean, theoretically, it's probably the right strategy anyway. Uh, It's not worth trying to steal the blinds when the blinds are so insignificant. Like, what's the difference if I steal these blinds and then I have 5120 instead of 5000? Increasing my stack by 2% now by stealing the blinds when I don't even know how my opponents play yet is probably not worth it. Later on, when the blinds represent 10% of my stack or 20% of my stack, then it becomes mandatory, basically, to try to, to get after as many of those blinds and antis as I can. But at this point, the theory is we want to have a good hand or some other very good reason to enter a pot. That is the strategy that I generally have when I first sit down. An exception might be if I'm familiar with a few of my opponents, I might choose to deviate From that basic theory. But all things being equal. I would usually want to have a real hand. And don't even worry about trying to steal blinds. For the first couple of levels in a tournament like this. So here we go. It's folded to us. In the cutoff. And we have a playable hand. The Ace Ace. So we've got Ace of Spades. Ace of Hearts. Uh, We make it 200. I don't think it really makes much difference. I mean, you could make it 240. You could min raise it. My default at this stage of the tournament, especially from late position, is like two and a half times the big blind. So that's what we do here. Uh, the button calls on our immediate left with 10,000 behind. I remember he doubled up early on a major cooler. I think he had the ace high flush versus the king high flush or whatever, and he busted somebody already. Also, remember this is ACR, so there's re-entry available uh for probably the next couple of hours at least and some players will gamble a little bit with their $11 buy-ins. So for that reason, you will sometimes see players doubling up early where somebody else gambled or whatever. So it's not that uncommon to see somebody with a 10,000 stack on like the 7th hand of the tournament. So anyway, Yeah, he calls with 10,000 behind and the small blind folds and the big blind calls and he's got us barely covered. So we have the shortest stack and we don't really have reads on our opponents. So when I'm in that situation, I tend to try to exploit the mistakes that the typical opponents would be making in whatever buy-in level I'm playing. So in an $11 tournament, I expect my opponents to be too loose. So, for example, this call on the button is not necessarily a, a show of great strength. The guy just doubled up, maybe on the previous hand right before this one, but regardless, very recently doubled up, and he might feel like, oh, now I'm just going to you know splash around with this 10000 Or he may have a normal type of hand like pocket sevens, I mean, a lot of us would call with a lot of hands with these deep stacks and having the button. So his call doesn't really tell us much. Likewise, the the big blind who was getting such an unbelievable price, he could have really any two cards. So we expect the post-flop mistakes to be of the calling variety for the most part. Because we don't have reads on our opponents, those are the mistakes that players in an $11 buy-in tend to make So we're going to go with that until proven otherwise. All right. So there's 640 in the pot. And we have about 4,600 behind. And the flop comes 10 of clubs, 7 of hearts, 6 of spades. So 10, 7, 6, rainbow, hero holding the pocket aces. So this is not the greatest flop. I mean, obviously, either one of our opponents could potentially have 9-8, pocket 7s, pocket 6s. Those hands make sense. Some players might even have pocket 10s, although personally, I would be 3-betting. So it's not the greatest flop in the world. But again, because it's an $11 buy-in and because we've noticed the types of mistakes that players in these tournaments make, we are going to be exploitative and not worry about how it's a semi-wet board with a lot of medium, medium cards. Against tougher opponents, we might want to try to play pot control and consider aces a good hand to either win a small pot or lose a big one. All those old cliches that Mike Sexton <laughs> gave us back in the day. Uh, but because of the type of tournament that we're playing, I'm not going to have a cautious approach, even on this somewhat scary 1076 6 flop so the big blind checks as expected and i go ahead and fire out 320 uh, exactly half the pot into this 640 uh, i think that aces are going to be the best hand quite often here and i think it's entirely possible that we can get three streets of value from one of our opponents we just don't know which one yet <laughs> so we make the bet the button folds and the big blind calls. All right. This is the best possible outcome for this flop action. I don't like having an active player on my left. I've talked about this before. I think with the, with the, the first Matt Stout episode, we got into why this is so bad. So like when he calls with another player yet to act, then I do have to start to worry. Like, what is this guy doing? Is he good at poker? Does he just have a 10 or could I be in big trouble here now with him? Folding, I will now have position for the rest of the hand, and I still have pocket aces, so that is the desired outcome. So once he folds, I'm really rooting for that call from the big blind. Again, I don't really have any specific reads on this big blind because it's so early in the tournament, and on my HUD or whatever, I didn't really have a lot to go on either. So just based on the fact that he is uh, most likely a typical $11 tournament player, I'm looking still towards getting three streets of value unless the runout is particularly sickening. The turn is the king of spades. So we're heads up in position with pocket aces on a board of 10, 7, 6, king with two spades. And we have the ace of spades for what it's worth. The big blind leads into us, which is surprising, And he bets half the pot, 640 into the 1280 pot. Okay, so had he checked, I probably would have made about the same bet. I might have gone a little bit bigger, believe it or not. Uh, When he leads here, you have to ask yourself, what is his range for doing so? Well, it's possible our opponent has king 10. That hand makes a lot of sense. You know, you call pre flop. You check and call on a 10 high flop when you have top pair with a king kicker. And now you make two pair, but also the board has now got a possible flush draw and it's straightening out. So you might want to just go ahead and bet it uh, to protect your hand. That's one of the few hands I'm worried about. I believe that 10-7, 7-6, 10-6, and most sets would have check raise on the flop. Not always, but I think that generally speaking, that's what players in these tournaments tend to do. They tend to be very concerned about getting outdrawn, and I think that might be what's going on here. Perhaps he has Queen Jack. That's another hand that makes a little bit of sense. Maybe he's got two spades, although that's a little bit less likely when we have the Ace of Spades. So we block flush draws a little bit, but overall, I don't see a reason to raise this. I wanted to get three streets of value. He's made the bet that I was going to make. So I'm happy to just call and see the river. Now, would you have raised here? I don't know. I mean, I would like to hear a case for raising. We might take it down too much when we raise because some players would do this as a bluff where they just missed everything but they just feel like they want to take a stab. Maybe a hand like... I don't know, let's say Queen 8, right? Queen 8 has a gut shot and an overcard, and now the king comes, and they don't feel like they can check and call again, so they want to bet to take the play away. I mean, you do see that sometimes. Uh, certainly, Queen Jack makes sense. Maybe even 5-4 just wants to go ahead and lead here and maybe try to represent that king. All in all, I think aces are... Way too strong to fold, but not quite strong enough to raise, so I just call. Now the pot is 2560, and we have 3660. So we've got about 1.4 times the pot remaining in our stack. So we call, and the river is the seven of diamonds, pairing the board. So the final board of 10, 7, 6, king, Seven, And our opponent, again, bets 1280, which is, again, exactly half the pot. We bet half the pot on the flop, and now he bet half the pot on both the turn and the river. Now, I don't think we can fold here. We've got pocket aces, the board paired. Uh, it's not great news that he's betting, but we have to wonder whether it's better to call or raise now against a really tough opponent um, a known professional player I don't think raising makes any sense at all because some of the time he'll be bluffing and he'll always fold when when he's bluffing some of the time he'll have a hand but when we raise he won't call I don't think that doing that against a really tough opponent would make a lot of sense but in this type of tournament, a king, especially king-10, which is just going to be frustrated that the board paired, and also knowing that king-10 can still beat ace-king. So because I believe we can get value from a king, possibly even a 10, believe it or not, I've seen it in these types of tournaments that some players will actually call you, even a, a bl- like they'll put you on a bluff, Even though I'm hard, I think I'm never bluffing here when I shove, right? I don't think that I have any bluffs in my range at all. But they'll still call you down with like a ten or maybe like a slow played pocket jacks type of hand. You'll see these kind of things, and this is why it's important to differentiate between the eleven dollar buy-in and the hundred dollar buy-in and everything in between. You have to know what mistakes. These opponents tend to make so I do shove and that might seem wild to some of you because of course some of the time our opponent will have a seven or a full house, right? Uh, Of course, that's possible or straight even but we stick it in and he folds now just because we didn't get action doesn't mean that we shouldn't have made the play. I think it's correct to raise with the aces here trying to exploit the tendencies of the field and assuming that our opponent is most likely in line with those tendencies. So I don't want to let him off the hook with a king. I don't want to just make it easy for him by calling and then he sees the bad news when I turn over the better hand. I go for maximum value here, but I don't get it. And it's possible that he just had a draw anyway and was just, you know, he didn't have anything on the river, so he had to bluff like, if he had 5-4, that's a great bluffing candidate. He's got 5 high, and he you know could try to represent a 7 or whatever. Uh, personally, I wouldn't have played 5-4 that way at all, but you do see it. So, anyway, I thought that was an interesting spot in that I chose to go for all the marbles there rather than just calling. And, again, guys, this is an exploitative decision. I know that Game Theory does not want me <laughs> to raise here. This pot is plenty big. For aces and sevens. But because I believe my opponent is likely to make a certain mistake. I wanted to give him the opportunity to make that mistake. So let me know what you guys think about that one. I found that one uh, a somewhat interesting hand. All right, let's move on to uh, another hand that I wanted to discuss today. This one comes from a $109 buy-in on ACR with a, I believe an $80,000 guaranteed prize pool, something like 12,000 for first place. And so this is a, uh, obviously a different scenario. The competition in this tournament is much, much tougher. You will see players that I have interviewed on this podcast at your table. Uh, You will certainly have difficult decisions from time to time. So, We are in the money already. That's the good news. There are 31 players left, and the average stack is about 400,000. The blinds are 5,000, 10,000 with an 1150 ante. Thank you, ACR, for that bizarre ante. Action folds to the cutoff, who is a very loose, aggressive player. Uh, He has been involved in about half the pots that I've seen on this table, and I've been at this table for a while. He's got about a million, so he's doing quite well. Again, the average is about 400,000, and he opens from the cutoff to 25K. So again, it's 5K, 10K, and a cutoff, loose, aggressive, somewhat wild opponent makes it 25. The button folds, and we are in the small blind holding the ace of diamonds four of diamonds and we have 390 so just a notch below the average stack all right so ace four suited in the small blind most of you will say i have 39 big blinds i will say my m is around 16. so when i'm in this kind of zone and i have an ace in the blinds versus a loose aggressive opponent, this is a good time for me to at least occasionally fight fire with fire. If you want to fold, I'm okay with that. I don't think that we should be calling. You don't want to put in 25,000 of your 390,000 against this guy with a suited ace. There are a lot of reasons why. You are unlikely to flop a flush or flush draw. So if that's all you're playing for, uh, it's not it's not going to be a very common outcome. So therefore, it's not worth it to just play for that. You might invite the big blind to squeeze, which puts you in a terrible spot. Uh, the big blind has us barely covered and might see this as a golden opportunity. A loose, aggressive fellow opens, as he always will from late position. And then Clayton, who's not exactly a rock himself, calls. I could probably make a profit three betting with a pretty wide range here uh, from the big blind. So you don't want to invite that action. And most importantly to me, you're going to have SPR problems. Like if we just call, there's going to be what about 70 ish thousand in the middle. And we're going to have 365 behind. So your M is going to be in that your SPR rather is going to be in that 5-6 to six range, which is just brutal, especially when you have an opponent who has the full three bullets you know, to fire a barrel each and every street some of the time. It's going to be very hard to call down with just a pair of aces, even against this guy. So you don't want to do that. You want to try to either fold or get aggressive and fight fire with fire. So that's what we do here. We 3-bet it to... 78,000. The big blind folds and the original razor just calls. Now we've set ourselves up for a pretty good post-flop scenario. Our uh, The pot is now 178,000. Uh, so our SPR is just under 2. It's about 1.8 ish. And so now all we need to do is flop an ace or some diamonds and see if we can get this guy to try to make us lay it down, which we are not Going to do. So the flop comes. Ace of hearts. Queen of diamonds. Six of clubs. So under the circumstances. This is a great flop. We have top pair. The backdoor flush draw. You got to love it. With an SPR. Of under two. And top pair. Folding is just not an option. Against a wild loose opponent. Like this one. Uh, How best to proceed. You could definitely check. If you check, Villain will sometimes think you have a pair of kings or pocket jacks and then he can try to push you off when he doesn't have either of those hands beat. I think it's better to bet here, but you want to make sure that you make a bet that he can call. So I really want him to call and I bet 49 into 178. So 49,000 into the pot of 178. So I'm betting... Less than a third of the pot. And Villain calls. So this is fine. I'm not worried, okay? I mean, if he has a better ace and he didn't get it all in with me pre-flop, then I'm unlucky and whatever. That's just, That's just. I'm going to get 31st place in this tournament. Uh, You don't play aggressively pre-flop and then hit a good flop and then play scared. It's just not good poker. Especially when we're already so invested in this pot we've put in so much of our stack already we don't really want to think we don't want to develop a folding mentality from here I can't believe some of the ridiculous folds I've seen from players that I considered pot committed anyway uh, villain does call and now there is 276 in the pot and we just have 189 behind so about two thirds of the pot left behind and the turn is the ace of clubs, pairing the board and giving us three of a kind. So, first question, is this a good card or a bad card? Like, obviously, it's a good card in the sense that it improves my hand, but is it a good card for us to continue betting, or should we slow down? I think it's close, but the best play here, in my opinion, is to check and let our opponent try to steal. Uh, Now that we have three aces, it's unlikely that our opponent has us beat. So we're no longer concerned about losing the hand. Now it's really about trying to get maximum value for our three of a kind. And I think that betting again here will only work when our opponent has a queen, right? I don't see what else. He may have floated us on the flop with a hand like King Jack, right, with a gut shot, maybe like King Jack suited with one of the suits on the rainbow flop. He might have floated with pocket nines, pocket eights, hands that didn't necessarily want to get this many chips all in pre-flop, but felt like they could call in position and take a flop. And now we bet so small, he's just quite, not quite ready to fold his hand yet. Like th- This kind of stuff will happen from time to time. And if we bet again, all of those hands are going away. And we have a loose, aggressive opponent. The kind of mistake he makes the most is betting when he should check, a raising when he should call. That's what loose aggressive is. So for that reason, I decide to check and hope that this guy puts in a bet. Like he floated with King Jack, he missed, and now I check, so he's going to try to rep that ace and see if he can get me to fold whatever the heck I have. So that's the play I go with here. And unfortunately, uh villain checks behind. So when he doesn't bet This turn card, which is so good for his range, uh, I think he's got something. He's good enough to know that the appearance of the second ace makes it unlikely that I have the hand I have, three aces. So he needs to try to take the pot away and see if he can bluff me off of pocket kings, pocket jacks, pocket tens, other hands that I might have three bet pre-flop when he doesn't do that it's because he has something that he thinks he can win a showdown with maybe like a queen or pocket tens pocket nines pocket eights although I do think it's fine for him to get just get all in with me when he has pocket tens pocket nines I know some players especially this late in a tournament they don't like to take a big coin flip or whatever or risk running into a bigger pair so I mean it's possible he has those hands although I I wouldn't have those hands in his shoes anyway we check check here on the turn and now the river is the six of hearts so now the board is double paired it's ace queen six ace six and no flush came in and actions on me i just shove all in and the reason why is because i think any smaller bet is going to look very suspicious (laughs) and i'm not sure that i can really get action on a smaller bet it looks like i'm begging for a call this could be a desperate play with a hand that missed maybe if i have king jack suited or something like that so And most importantly, because Villain didn't bet on the turn, I felt that he had something, and most likely that something would be a queen. And because the board is double paired, I think he has to call with a queen a lot, given the price. Again, I'm only betting two-thirds of the pot, and I think a queen will be good about that often. So I shove it in, and sure enough, he called with... King, queen, offsuit, king of diamonds, queen of spades. So opponent's play in this entire hand is pretty good, I think. I like his open, obviously, pre-flop. I don't mind his calling my three bet. I don't mind him calling my little flop bet and not raising it. I love his check back on the turn because there's no reason to bet he can't really get value from a worse hand unless I specifically have something like queen, jack. Or I get stubborn with pocket tens or something. Yeah, weird. So I like the way he played every street, including his call on the river. But yeah, that was a uh, a big pot for us, and we end up making the uh, a final table of this one. So that was a a key hand that took us from an average stack, got the full double up, and then had obviously twice the average stack. So that'll do it for this episode. Uh, please keep the comments coming. Definitely want to give us uh, a review on iTunes or what do they call it now? Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever else you are listening. Make sure you're subscribing to the podcast if you haven't done that yet. That helps us a lot because it means that it gets automatically downloaded, which helps our overall numbers and helps us climb the ranks and allows us to continue bringing this content to you on a week-to-week basis also if you are in the market for a training site i cannot recommend tournament poker edge more highly for 25 dollars a month with an annual subscription you get access to all of our amazing experts andrew brokus alex fitzgerald colin moshman and on and on and on you definitely want to get on board if you haven't done so already visit tournament pokeredge.com so for everyone here at tpe i'm clayton fletcher thank you all so much for listening
0: i wanna hold them like they do in texas plays fold them let them hit me raise it baby stay with me Play the cards with pace to start And after she's been hooked I'll play the one that's on her heart The her, heart, there we will be While little gambling is fun when you're with me I love it Russian roulette is not the same without a gun And baby, when it's loving, it's not rough It isn't fun, fun Oh, 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 oh.